This morning's uh, sermon passage is from Joshua chapters 3 and 4. You can find that on pages 179 and 180 of the Bibles provided. If we were to sort of rank the big events of Old Testament salvation history, the one that rightly gets top billing is God's saving of his people at the Red Sea. This miraculous deliverance of God is part of a whole group of kind of connected wonders that God performed. So before the Red Sea crossing, we have the the ten plagues of Egypt, which culminate in the the angel of death passing through the land and the salvation of the firstborn of Israel through the blood on their doorposts, which was the first Passover. And then after the Red Sea, there's the covenant that God makes with his people on Mount Sinai, where he delivers the law to them and then subsequently instructs them about the tabernacle. This kind of complex of mighty works of God defines who Israel is. You could argue before this, they are kind of maybe a, a, just a collection of families united by their common ancestry. And after this, they become a nation ruled by God with their, their lives and their worship directly ordered by the living God. And yet, as great as this complex of wonders is, it's only a beginning. And left alone, it is even incomplete. After the Exodus events, God's people are still in the wilderness between Sinai and Canaan. They've yet to receive the inheritance that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Canaan. That was the whole goal of God delivering his people from serving Pharaoh in Egypt is that one day they would come to serve God in the land that he had prepared for them. And so here in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, we find the account of Israel finally reaching that goal. After all their rebellion and wilderness wandering, it's finally time for them to pass over the Jordan and enter the land that God had prepared for them. And so the Red Sea and the Jordan are kind of two ends of the same event. Two episodes of the same event, we might say. One great salvation, one a bringing out of sin and death, and one a deliverance into the life that God had prepared for his people. The account we read here in these two chapters is presented in such a way as to match the importance of the occasion. We could summarize what happens in just a few sentences. But God uses two whole chapters to tell this story. And you'll notice if you read it through beforehand, the pace of the action kind of slows down to a crawl. The key characters and details are repeated again and again. We're told things once, twice, and three times. And God does this because he wants us to realize what's happening here is very important and because he has lots of things to tell us in order to interpret what's happening here. Here we see the end of the Exodus, not just the conclusion, but the goal that God was working for in saving his people for himself. This ultimate purpose of God saving his people through these mighty acts so that his people can know him and worship him. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at this idea of knowing God and use this passage to see four statements about the knowledge of the Lord. So first, we'll see that we are called to know the covenant-making Lord. We're called to know the covenant-making Lord. Second, knowing the Lord's word and work feeds our faith. Knowing the Lord's word and work feeds our faith. Third, God's people know the Lord together. God's people know the Lord together. And finally, all people need to know the Lord. So I'll just repeat those again as I see you furiously writing them down. We are called to know the covenant-making Lord. Second, knowing the Lord's word and work feeds our faith. Third, God's people know the Lord together. And finally, all people need to know the Lord. Let's jump into this first one by reading the first six verses. Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, to see that we are to know the covenant-making Lord. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there should be a distance between you and it, about two thousand cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went on before the people. In verses 1 through 6, we see preparations are made for the the crossing The people leave their camp, which was at this grove of trees about 10 miles west of the Jordan, and they make their way to the banks of the Jordan to kind of set up another camp before the final crossing. And after this move to the banks of the Jordan, we see this series of three speeches. And the key speech in this section is from the officers of the people to the people. And the key thing about this speech is that it introduces us to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So let me just read a little bit of that speech again. That the, these officers of the people, they say, As you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out. Then he calls them also to keep a distance between themselves and the Ark so they can know the way that they're supposed to go. Again, this reason this speech is so important is it introduces us to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. The Ark of the Covenant was one of Israel's most holy objects. It was a box made of wood, overlaid with gold inside and out. And on top of this box was the mercy seat, this seat crafted by artisans with two cherubim on either side. Now, it's tempting to think of the Ark as a relic or religious artifact, just like we might go to a museum and see some ancient idol or relic. But that would be a huge mistake. And to help us fight against that mistake, it helps us to focus on the the kind of full name that's given here. It was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. It was an 
a box, right? Ark represents were just for box. So you can think of the ark that, that carried Noah and the ark that's this tiny box. It's a box, but it's the box that represents the covenant of the Lord. When Israel was in, in camp mode, when they'd set up all the tents around the tabernacle, this box was placed in the most holy place inside the tabernacle. So the most, the most inter sanctum, the holiest place where the high priest could go once a year. And the mercy seat on top of the ark was the place where God met with his high priest. So if you can imagine one singular place where the presence of the holy God was most clearly made manifest, it's on this this mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark, the objects inside were the the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone that, that instructed Israel on their life with God. It also held the manna, the the symbol of God's provision for his people through the old covenant as they wandered through the wilderness. And then it held a rod of Aaron that had miraculously blossomed. And it wasn't just the fact that it had blossomed. It was the fact that it had blossomed in rebuke of Israelites who were rebelling against God's authority. So this blossoming rod of Aaron that budded with almond buds and almonds was a was a sign of God's fatherly correcting and rebuke of his people when they rebelled against him. So all told, this ark is a stand-in for God himself. It was a visible sign to Israel that the Lord had bound himself. That's that word covenant. He had bound himself to provide for Israel in every way. To feed them, to teach them, to rebuke them. And ultimately to save them. The place in Joshua 3 and 4 where we see most clearly that the ark is a stand-in for the Lord is down in verses 11 and 13. So just read with me verse 11. Behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. The ESV has a note that these two phrases should be set side by side as in parallel. So it could read like it does in verse 13. The Ark of the Covenant, comma, the Lord of all the earth. To behold the Ark here is to behold their covenant Lord. To be reminded of all of his provision and power and promises. So here in the speech the officers of the officers to the people, we see that the Ark is going to lead Israel's way across the Jordan. And this was an unusual formation. Usually the tabernacle objects traveled in the middle of the procession, but now they're going to lead the way. And the key instruction is in verse 4. The people are to stay about a thousand yards behind the ark. Pastor theologian named Dale Ralph Davis notes that this distance may have allowed all the Israelites who followed to look down into the Jordan and see the miracle of God stopping the waters because they, they were going to have to descend And so at this distance, they could see what God was doing. Here, we see, though, that God's people literally follow him. They follow the Lord of the covenant. And as they do so, they're going to witness his saving work and know the way they should go. Following the Lord here for Israel, then, means experiencing his saving power. They're going to walk through on dry ground as God stops the waters. Usually we we think of following as as obedience, and it's true here. There is obedience at play. They're supposed to do what the Lord says and follow the ark. But that's not what's highlighted. 
The emphasis is on what the Lord is doing for them. The way Israel is going is the path that can only be walked by those saved by God's power and grace. And it says they've never walked this way before. This is the way that only their covenant Lord knows. As they enter the promised land to conquer it, they're completely dependent on their covenant-making God. The God who saved them from Pharaoh, who led them in the wilderness. It's interesting just to think they, they had, or some of them had entered the promised land before, and 10 of the 12 had great doubts, right? Now they're going to enter by faith, following their covenant-making God. The picture here is of complete dependence on their merciful and righteous God. Now, if we take this text and try to apply it to ourselves, we can't apply it directly, right? There's no, no box for us to follow. But aren't the realities of the Ark of the Covenant revealed even more clearly in Christ? That passage we read this morning from, from, from Mark chapter 1, don't we see God showing up his presence embodied in the Jordan by his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we see the mercy and righteousness of God. In Christ, the Lord binds himself to sinners by taking on flesh and dying in their place. We know that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And in the new covenant, our Lord secures salvation and forgiveness of sins through his own perfect life, death on the cross, and resurrection from the dead. So we know the Lord's covenant faithfulness, the Lord's covenant love, by fixing our eyes on Christ. We follow Christ. Now again, we usually use that phrase to, to talk about our discipleship and our obedience. But this picture that, of Israel shows us that, that that following of Christ, true following of Christ, begins with our dependence on his saving grace. It's, it's undergirded all throughout by dependence on God's saving grace to us in Christ. So the only way that you and I can follow Christ is by resting on what he has done for us when he bore God's wrath in our place. We can no more save ourselves or guide our lives than Israel could hold back the waters of the Jordan River. And yet, don't we often try to do that? We think of God as someone maybe who makes matching grants, right? We put in our contribution and he meets us halfway. We think we can be good enough to deserve his blessings, but that's not what it means to know the covenant-making Lord. To know the covenant-making Lord means to admit you've never passed this way before. You cannot save yourself. If you were to go your own way, you'd go the way of pride and ultimately to destruction. But the Lord is willing and able to save. This passage begins with a call to know the Lord of grace who makes unbreakable promises to sinful people who follow him. To us today, it's a call to fix our eyes on Christ, who by his life and death and resurrection secures our place among the people of God. So the first thing we see here about the knowledge of God is that we are to know the covenant-making Lord 
by fixing our eyes on Christ. The next section of our passage continues with with speeches uh, that are instructions about crossing the Jordan. First, we have a speech from the Lord to Joshua, and then Joshua gives commands to the people. And as in verse 6, there's an emphasis on knowing something. So in verse 7, the Lord says that he will exalt Joshua so that the people will know that God is with Joshua just the way God had been with Moses. And then in verse verse 10, Joshua tells the people that they will know the living God is among them and that this living God is going to give them victory through the lands, uh, through the victory over the people of the lands. And they will know this because of the miraculous thing that God is about to do. So we see that this knowledge that God is going to give them here through Joshua and through his miracle is going to equip them as they go on their way into the land. We see that knowing the Lord's work and word feeds our faith. Let's read verses 7 through 13. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, And that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from among the tribes of Israel, from, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. The knowledge of God here comes in two ways, like I've said. It comes first as God exalts Joshua. Now the the exaltation of Joshua isn't the giving to Joshua of superpowers, right? He doesn't even have a rod like Moses to hold out over the river. The Lord exalts Joshua by making Joshua a conduit of the Lord's word. We see here the Lord does not announce directly to the people his plan about the priests and their feet touching the water and the waters being heaped up. Joshua gets the privilege of telling Israel that God's going to stop the Jordan. Joshua is the one who tells them about the priests and their feet touching the water and the waters being stopped. The Lord exalts Joshua by speaking through him. So Joshua announces what's going to happen. And then we'll see in verses 14 through 17 that God does exactly what Joshua announced. When the Lord performs this miracle, Joshua is then exalted as one whom Israel can trust. He's a faithful relator of God's news. He is a true prophet. Joshua's superpower then is is that he's faithful to speak God's words. I think this tells us something about the kinds of leaders God's people need. They need leaders who are servants of the word. The exaltation of Joshua then is inextricably linked to the fact that the Lord speaks through him. So the Lord gives them his word. 
The second way that the knowledge of God comes, of course, is through the miracle itself. That's what Joshua says in verses 10 through 13. So just as in the first section, the eyes of Israel are to remain fixed on the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And as they watch the Ark, they're going to see the Ark carried by the priest go into the river. And they're going to see the river be stopped. The waters be cut off. The waters be piled up. And by this miracle, Israel knows God is with us. And he will not fail to grant us victory over our enemies. So the Lord says that his people can know that he's the living God and he's with them. And this, again, means he's not like the gods of the Canaanites, the gods who have eyes but cannot see and mouths that cannot speak. Israel is being equipped through the miracle at the Jordan and through the exaltation of Joshua, through the word God's given to Joshua, to know that he's the living God. And it's key that we don't separate these things. Part of how God is the living God is that he speaks. He tells us his law. He tells us what he's going to do. He tells us what, what, what's uh, the meaning of what he's done. Joshua's speaking is the way that Israel knows God. And it's the way that all future generations will know what happened here. So the fact that we don't have the ark to look at or any great miracle to witness with our eyes doesn't mean any lack for us because we have God's word that reveals God's work. In life, we often want certainty that things are going to work out for us. So we want to know that we're going to get the project done on time or that we're going to be accepted into that first choice school or graduate program we want assurance that we're going to get the promotion or that our, our offer is going to be accepted on that dream house we want. We want to be assured that there is a solution to every problem. We want assurances that our suffering will be manageable, that all our sicknesses will be treatable. To put all that in the worst light possible, we crave a kind of knowledge of the future that will make trusting God unnecessary. But that's not what God wants for us. The things God intends to sustain, sustain us today are the same things he provided for Israel. Knowledge of his word and knowledge of his saving work. And knowledge of his saving work that comes through his inspired word. Through these gifts, we know that God is with us. Are you right now being sustained by God's saving work and by God's word. The exalted, the exalted servant we look to is not Joshua, but Jesus. He speaks God's word to us. And in Jesus' work on the cross, we see God's greatest saving work. For those who believe in Christ's word and trust in his work, these are the Lord's signs to you that he's with you. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God is with us. Jesus Christ is our hope that the living God, the resurrection God, he is with us. He's not abandoned us. The truth is that our lives are filled with uncertainty. And we're left without any clear solution to the biggest problems that we have. You know, by some measures, this is a small gathering of Christians here on a Sunday morning. But even among this gathering, we've got plenty of big problems, don't we? How can we face these things with faith? What God intends us to do 
is to fix our eyes and our ears on Christ. We are to keep listening to his word, for Christ has the words of eternal life. Isn't that our confession? Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. We obey the commands of his word to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We respond to his gracious invitation to come to him and find rest for our souls. And no matter what suffering we face in Christ, we know that God is with us. Our sins are forgiven. Our hope of heaven is unshakable because Christ has secured it. We look to Christ and we see our hope. As you face the future, or as you face the challenges of the present, is your hope in Christ? Is it enough for you that in Christ you can know the living God, or is your hope fixed on something else? A good way to see what your hope is in is by observing the things that cause you to rejoice and cause you to despair. Are you devastated by the thought of losing out on some good thing you want? Or are you all sunshine and roses because you got what you wanted? Or are you sustained by the only thing, the only one that is permanent and unchanging? The knowledge of the living God through Jesus Christ. In whatever circumstances of life you're in, the Lord would have you look to his word and his works, and he will feed your faith. In this next section, the author finally tells us that Israel passed over the Jordan. And the emphasis in this section is not simply that they crossed, but that the entire nation crossed over together. We'll see in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4 that the author is sure to include the men ready for war from the tribes of the land on the other side of the Jordan. They were included in this crossing. And we also have an account of how these 12 representatives of Israel, one man from each tribe, gathered a stone to build a memorial to the Lord. This event and its significance was for the whole people of God. They were to know the Lord together, and they were to pass on that knowledge to future generations. So that's our third statement about the knowledge of God. God's people know the Lord together. All 12 tribes are to remember together God's saving work in the promised land. So let's read this account of the crossing beginning in Joshua chapter 3, 14 through 414. This will be one of our longest readings. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over dry, on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from among, from among the, uh, take twelve men from the people, 
from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut, when, <clears throat> were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan and the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. So just as Joshua prophesied, the Lord piled up the waters. And we get some extra detail here to show us that for sure this is the Lord's work. The Jordan is in flood stage, right? And yet, the people pass through on dry ground. The Lord of the covenant made their path straight. Nobody slips on a rock. Nobody gets bogged down in the mud. The Lord did this. A repeated theme in these verses is that the 12 stones are to represent Israel. So repeatedly we read this phrase, from each tribe a man. The monument they were going to build on the other side of the Jordan was a permanent symbol of Israel's safe crossing by the Lord's power. And that's what Joshua explains beginning in the middle of verse 6. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? You shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people a memorial forever. I want you to notice that the Ark of the Covenant stands at the center here. It's when the Ark came that the waters were cut off, right? That's what God wants his people to understand. And Israel is to fellowship around what the Lord did for them in cutting off the waters from the Jordan. It's to be a memorial forever. This generation and all future generations are to be united by knowing the saving work of God. These 12 stones, which were once scattered on the bottom of the river, are now gathered together, put into a, a monument, a monument of God's saving work. 
These scattered common things at the bottom of a river are now united to become this, this holy site, this holy testimony to the fact that God saves his people. And this is a key truth about who God's people are. God's people themselves are a holy monument to his saving work that God has saved us through judgment. That's what these stones represent. And that's what we are still today. We are a trophy of grace together of what God has done for us. We see Israel is supposed to remember this forever. They're never supposed to move beyond the knowledge of what God did for them here. How he, he rescued them and brought them safely into his presence. Now, tragically for Israel, they fell away from this knowledge. I mean, it's notable that I don't think any of us have ever been on a pilgrimage to the monument here, right? We don't know where it is. It's not there anymore. Israel wandered away from this knowledge. But there does remain a memorial of God's saving work. And that's in the church. In 1 Peter 2, we find Peter saying that Christians are living stones which God has built into a temple for himself. We are those who once were not a people, but by God's mercy, now we belong to God. Peter wrote that at the point, the point of God's making us a people for his own possession is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Together, we exalt the Lord's mercies. Together, as God's new temple built of living stones, we magnify his excellencies in saving us, in delivering us out of the realm of sin and death into his marvelous light. Now, there's something glorious about one individual sinner repenting and trusting in the Lord. Right? The parables in Luke 15 are about that. The angels of heaven rejoicing because one sinner is found. But God is after something even more glorious, a greater glory. His redeemed people together, the 12 stones built together, praising the Lord for his saving mercy. Do you grasp that greater glory? Glorifying God with God's people is why God made you and redeemed you. And fellowshipping around God's saving work with God's people is one of the most important ways God encourages our individual faith. He builds us up through sharing in the knowledge of his salvation with his people. By God's grace, I pray that's what's happening even now as we are here gathered for worship. We are built up as we here share in the knowledge, we fellowship the knowledge of God's saving work. We often pray a couple things for our church that get to these points. We got these from Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop's book, Compelling Community. So in our pastoral prayers, you often hear us pray two things. Pray that we would see it as unusual when the local church isn't the focal point of much of our energy and ambition. And then also we pray that we would see it as unusual when a member's life seems to keep the church on the periphery. In a healthy church, it should be normal for Christians to make the church the focal point of our energy and ambition. And this is not because we've cooked up an idea to be kind of legalists about church. No, the, 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 this should be the norm because it's as we are part of this body that we proclaim the excellencies of God. As we show the world and even the unseen powers the manifold wisdom of God, as we see in Ephesians 3. 
And going along with that, it should seem strange and unusual when a, when a Christian and a church member pushes the church away to the margins of their life. We want that to seem strange. We want that to be a call for us to, to check on that person, to pray for them, to encourage them. When a person does that, they're showing they've, they've missed something crucial about how they are to know and glorify God. We're to know and glorify God together with God's people. We are to share in God's joy with God's people. We're to share in the great news that he's rescued us from the waters of the Jordan. He's rescued us from his judgment through Jesus Christ. And that reminds me of two more prayer points we see in the same list. Pray that we would expect conversations with, each, with other church members to be deep and often theological in nature. Pray that we would think it important to encourage each other with Scripture. We see with those two things that the point of our unity is not for unity's sake. The point is fellowship over God's saving work. We want to cultivate a fellowship that's centered on what God has done, on what God speaks to us in his word. So as you make the church the focal point of your energies and ambition, be ambitious to talk about God's saving work in your life. Give your energy to knowing scripture so that you can encourage others with scripture. Don't pursue theology as a hobby, but pursue theology as a way to encourage others with the life-giving knowledge of the God who saves. God's people know the Lord together. The final section of our passage looks back at the crossing from the, from the perspective of Canaan. Commentator David Howard helped me see this. He notes that you have a change here beginning in verse 16. No longer does the author speak of passing over the Jordan. Now he speaks of the priests and the Israelites coming up out of the Jordan. They came up out of it. The crossing is now complete. We're all safely on the other side. Now the memorial can be built and it gives us an opportunity once again to understand the meaning of the memorial. We'll notice as we read though, that there's a little bit of a difference in Joshua's explanation here and what he explained earlier. And one of the differences is, is that God's saving work is not only for Israel, but the knowledge of God's work is for all the peoples of the earth. And so we see here that all people need to know the Lord. Let's read beginning in verse 15. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all his banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal and he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. And as the Lord your God did to, all, did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. 
the Lord performs a final miracle here of returning to the Jordan, returning the waters to the Jordan at flood stage as soon as the priests feet are on dry ground, or, or I guess the, the dry part of the bank. And we see here another interesting detail, a date given, which was the date when, when Israel was supposed to pick their Passover lambs, which will tie in next week when Israel celebrates Passover in the land. And then also we see Joshua's obedience in building the memorial. As we said a second ago, there is this subtle shift This time, instead of the focus only being on stopping the waters, now Joshua explicitly links this miracle at the Jordan to the Lord's salvation at the Red Sea. So Joshua is doing a kind of biblical theology for us here. He's saying these two things go together. Twice now, God has brought his people safely through the waters of judgment. The crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan tell the story of God's great salvation for his people, in which he delivers them from the clutches of sin and death in Pharaoh's land and brings them into his land of blessing. We see the Lord does not save in a partial way or an incomplete way. The Lord brings to completion the good work he began in you and me. Isn't that an encouragement to us? The Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth to die for sinners, he's coming again. He's working now to sanctify us, and he will one day glorify us. He's brought us safely through the waters of the Red Sea, and he will bring us safely into his presence on the other side of the Jordan. By God's preserving grace, we will know and fear the Lord forever. That's a certainty. God saves completely. Now, we don't have a memorial monument to go visit, but we do have the church and we have the Lord's Supper. Here in the church as we gather, we are these living stones fellowshipping around the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. This is our memorial of what God has said he has done and what God has said he will do. Because Christ has paid the price of our sin, we know that we will one day feast with him when the Lord breaks his fast from wine and we drink with him in the new heavens and the new earth, the Lord will complete his work in our lives. Our fellowship together encourages us, hold fast to that hope. That's kind of what the whole book of Hebrews was about. But these truths are not truths that are only for God's people to keep to ourselves. Right? This last verse shows that God has a greater purpose in his saving work. He intends for the the knowledge of this mighty work to extend to all the peoples of the earth. Together, we who know the Lord together are to testify to his work together. Our life together says we're all different people from different backgrounds. We all bring our own individual record of sin, but we share in the one cross of Christ. Our work as Christ's people then is to proclaim Everybody needs to know the Lord. And through knowledge of God, you can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So each of us needs to ask, am I doing this work? Am I giving myself to this work of proclaiming the good news with my brothers and sisters? How am I working with my brothers and sisters to show my lost neighbor that they can find salvation in Christ's name? We often think of our evangelism as a very individual project. I encourage you to think of how you can include others in that. 
if nothing else, just in praying for you. All people need to know the Lord. Are we helping them to know the Lord? If you're here and you've not yet come to know the Lord, I hope that you see you're in exactly the right place. God wants you to hear that you can know him. He wants you to know that your rebellion against God deserves judgment. But in a miracle of grace, the judgment of God does not have to overwhelm you. The Lord Jesus suffered God's judgment in your place. The Lord Jesus died to pay for sins. He died on the cross and he rose again. And he did so as the all-sufficient sacrifice and the perfect high priest. And he stands in the way of God's judgment. For those who trust in Christ, Christ holds back the waters so that we can pass through safely into God's presence. You can be forgiven of your sins if you trust in Christ. You can know the perfectly righteous and merciful God by coming to know Christ. You can know Christ and the blessing that comes with following him wherever he leads. So the message this morning is that the knowledge of God's saving power is for you. If you would know the Lord, repent of your sins and trust in the saving work of Christ. There's no greater gift than the knowledge of the Lord. It's the gift that the Lord gave to his people as he stopped the Jordan and led them safely to the other side on dry ground. It's the promise of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And there's no greater ambition we can have than to follow Jesus as he leads us safely through the waters of judgment into life with God forever. Know the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, what a blessing it is to know you, to be able to look back on the cross of Christ to know that we should have hung there. And yet through Jesus' death, we are delivered. Father, we pray for eyes to see and know you. We pray that you'll help us to, to see the emptiness of the promises of our false gods, to repent of seeking to know them, and to turn and look upon Christ. We thank you that if we look upon him and believe, we have life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.